Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Ray Zimmer. And I'm Mike Cordes. And welcome to Album Addicts, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we are joined by returning guest co-pilot Louis Figaro. Louis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. It's great to be here again. All right. Great to have you back. Big time. So on this episode, we're going to talk about Queen's 1974 album, Queen 2. Louis, where do you come in with Queen in this particular album? Well, uh, Queen and I go back to about, uh, I guess it's 1975 when Night at the Opera came out. The first time I heard it was Bohemian Rhapsody as it played on and on and on on <laughs> FM radio. Um, I thought it was just absolutely nuts. I've never heard that many layers in a, in a recording before. I actually wound up get at eight years old, wounding up getting the album, I guess, shortly thereafter. And the whole album was just great. Everything from profit song all the way uh, to Bohemian Rhapsody was just amazing and totally unlike anything I have ever heard before. I'd been an Elton John fan, Grand Funk, um, you know, your, your typical seventies rock, uh, early seventies rock. I like the Beatles from the late sixties, but nothing like queen had ever hit my ears. So, uh, it was a really cool album, but queen Two I had never heard of at all. Um, when you shot me the email asking me if I wanted to do this one, I was, I, you know, I said, well, I'm, I'm a great queen fan. And, you know, let me see what songs are on this. And, all I saw was Seven Caesar Rye, which actually that's not even the version that I know of. It was the one from the first album, that little in instrumental at the end of it. But I had never heard Queen 2, so this was going to be a challenge for me. So uh, that's where I'm coming in with it. All right. Rock and Mike, how about you? So I think, you know, in the 80s, We Will Rock You and their early 80s stuff was kind of always on my radar. But the first time I actually sat down and like delved into Queen was really thanks to Wayne's World and the whole Bohemian Rhapsody scene in the in the car. Um, and then I think it was kind of a rite of passage living in Western Mass. Everybody had to own a copy of Queen's Greatest Hits. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, uh, and I went through and I went back from there. And um, as far as Queen 2, Seven Seas Arise, same thing. The uh, While I've heard of the album a lot, a lot of people talk about it. Prepping for this was the first time I gave it a proper listen all the way through. Ray, how about you? I think I was in kindergarten and I remember listening to the radio and that's when another one bites the dust got really big. Either kindergarten or first grade. And right around that same time period, I'm, I'm probably got the, the chronology all messed up, but crazy little thing called love was also pretty big. But they really weren't onto my on my radar until like Mike. Who is it? Was it Miss Chaccio who was the woodshop teacher in middle school? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember because like <laughs> one day she would she'd go between two artists that I remember Neil Young and Queen. <laughs> and like I remember her like playing tons and tons of Queen. And like I still whenever whenever I listen to them, I like get this like smell of like wood chips and like stale <laughs> stale coffee. Which is not a, an altogether unpleasant experience, but, you know, that's just me. So that was my early exposure to him. And like you were saying, Wayne's World brought Bohemian Rhapsody kind of in the forefront for me. And like a good Western Mass person, I had <laughs> Queen's Greatest Hits. But this is, <laughs> this is actually the first time, like, I ever listened to, like, an album. I was more familiar with the singles and shit like that. I mean, I listened a little bit to Sheer Heart Attack, and I dug it, but I wasn't, like, super familiar with it. This is, like, the first time I actually, like, spent time on this album. So I guess my exposure goes the last uh, five days. All right. 
So at last we're covering Queen. I can't believe it's taken us this long. It just seems like they've always been around. And I can't remember exactly when I first heard them, but I guess my first memory of them is We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions. I mean, what 70s kid didn't love that stomp, stomp, clap shit? You know what I mean? And then through the years, I heard more Queen singles, and I liked most of, if not all of them. And that led me to buy two Queen compilation CDs in the early 90s, I think it were. They were red and black. I think one was called Classic Queen, and the other was... Queen's Greatest Hits. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I loved all the songs on those. So the rite of passage, I, yes, I went through it. Now, I was always interested in exploring the catalog, but I didn't get around to doing it until around, I think it was 2005. It was the mid-2000s. I went to the local comic book store that was here at the time, and I met the owner. And it turns out we bonded more over music than superheroes. And he had the entire Queen discography on CD. So each week I'd borrow one, listen to it, burn it, and switch out CDs until I finally ripped the whole discography to my computer. And I did them in order. So Queen 2 was the second proper Queen album I got. So shout out to Moose Matson, wherever you are. So here are some basic facts about this record, and I'm using Wikipedia, so deal with it. Queen 2 is the second studio album by the British rock band Queen, released on March 8, 1974 on EMI Records in the UK and Electra Records in the US. It was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, Robin Jeffrey Cable, and Queen, and was recorded from August 1973 to February 1974 at Trident Studios and Langham One Studios, London, England. It reached number five on the UK Albums Chart and number 49 on the US Billboard 200 Chart and is certified gold by the BPI. Next, I'll give the band's lineup card. We've got Freddie Mercury on lead vocals, backing vocals, piano, and harpsichord. Brian May on electric guitar, backing vocals, acoustic guitar, lead vocals, bells, and piano. Roger Taylor, credited as Roger Meadows Taylor, on drums, backing vocals, lead vocals, additional vocals, gong, marimba, tambourine, and percussion, and John Deacon on bass guitar, acoustic guitar, and vocals. Okay, let's do a track-by-track analysis of this album. The first side of the album is called Side White, and Side White opens with Procession, written by Brian May. What do you think? I think it sounds like a soundtrack to a bad sci-fi space gladiator flick. Oh, wait a minute. That was like in six more years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was coming down the line. (laughs) Um, Gordon is live. Yeah. Flash. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help thinking of Bugs Bunny dressed like a monarch, you know, marching towards his throne, you know, beating the shit out of Elmer Fudd with that staff that he had. (laughs) um seriously this is um this is the song that they used to open their show uh their live show they used this and as a recording and then they came out and 
and did the next song that we're going to discuss as their opening tune. Um, it was a good opener. Um, it's, it sounds uh, very pomp and circumstance, I guess. <laughs> so that's about all I have about this one. All right. Rock and Mike. So, I mean, obviously, the moment you hear it, you know, it's Brian May because he just has that signature tone. So I, I, I think anybody who's grew up on classic rock, you hear that tone and you're like, oh, it's Queen. You just know yeah. off the bat. <laughs> it's like a it's a funeral procession. It's supposed to be like a like a dirge almost um, that kind of uh, bass drum kick drum. It works almost like a heartbeat. And then it sounds like it flatlines at the end, which I, I, I thought that was kind of kind of a weird way to open the album, especially when they were saying that this is supposed to be the more positive side of the album. <laughs> it's going to open with a funeral dirge. Um, I also read that Brian may perform this at Freddie Mercury's funeral, but I couldn't find any confirmation of that anywhere. Other than that, it's, it's an intro to the album. All right. Ray. Well, kind of like Mike just mentioned, uh, it's that red special guitar. And from what I read, he was playing it through John Deacon's amp. Uh, at least for like some of like the uh, layering har- layering harmony parts, but yeah. um yeah, this is guitar me orgy right here. Um, it almost sounds to me like, and I don't, I can't really qualify this with like any like like any criteria that it meets with, but it almost reminds me of like a, a baroque style composition. You know, you got like a couple different voices coming in. You have like those volume swells that create almost like a cello section is what I kind of hear when I hear it. I think it's fucking nutty good, man, and. Uh, I guess one of the things that May has always maintained is that like when he and his old man were making the Red Special, his goal sonically was to make that guitar sound like uh, a violin or, or like an orchestra. And uh, I think he accomplishes it on this piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what can I add? I mean, I'm just going to repeat basically what you guys all said. Roger Taylor's kick drum sounds like a heartbeat. Then we hear an instrumental funeral march all done on guitars, which is a great early example of Brian May's multi-tracked guitar money playing, which was done on his red special guitar that was famously built by Brian and his father and played through John Deacon's custom made amplifier, the Deakey Amp. And the amp makes the guitar sound sort of orchestral and it provides without question the signature sound of Brian May. You even mentioned that, Mike, of course. This track is short, 1 minute 13 seconds, and just basically serves as an intro to the next track. And that next track is Father to Son, written by Brian May. Lewis, how about this one? Don't you think that it sounds like uh, it's got like a Tommy overture kind of by the Who feel to yes. it as it as it comes in? There was definitely it seems like an influence there. I hear it. Yeah, the lyrics sound very personal. Um, without going through them, he he did have a great relationship with his dad, and um, they did build that guitar from scratch. They 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 even wound pickups and and I think they forged some of the metal that was on it too. I mean, he really went bare bones on that guitar too it sounds personal the lyrics sound very personal from what i take home from it is that it's uh father's words to sons are clear as day to the father but sons won't understand a word of it until they need to tell it to their own sons Hmm. that's actually something i've just discovered in my own life as well um it's it it really hits kind of close to home 
the layered guitars and vocal. Oh God, there's so many layers. There's so many layers on this album. It's it's it reminds me of like Farrah Fawcett Majors' hair in Charlie's Angels. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. It's just so, so shaggy layers. Um, you could tell they're having a creative ball, maybe even a little too much fun. The weaving jam at the end, the gang chorus that repeats the end, it's all prodigal queen. It's it's uh, prototypical queen. That That's really the word I was looking for. You can hear all the future albums right with this one song. Rock and Mike. I agree with you, Lou. The um, except you're you're a lot nicer. You said you heard Tommy. That piano that was completely nicked by bad English. That's when I see you smile. Oh, you're <laughs> right. That is, I heard that. I was like, you gotta be kidding me because you know it. Bad English had their time and place, but I was like, it's almost it's not note for note, but it's pretty damn close to being the the opening. Jonathan Kane part of when I see you smile and then, but it opens right up into an epic queen tune. And I freaking love this song. And really, I was thinking about it more in terms of the, the song being split into uh, three parts. So you have Freddie holding on to the notes between punctuations by the band. And then of course that signature queen sound that everybody at the signature queen background vocals, one minute you hear at the one minute mark you hear Brian May with of course that tone again that we were talking about. One forty one though those background vocals where they got nicked by bad English those background vocals are Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. The <laughs> do, 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 do. And that's I don't know why but it's like everything was reminding me of something else while I was listening to this. But at the two minute fourteen second mark that's where I fall in love with the song. It's heavy, man. It 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 is heavy. Maze's got that his swirling lead with a heavier tone, and then a couple planes take off. And it wasn't my computer screwing up this week. It was actually in the song at the three minute mark. Man, what a cool riff too. And you think they're slowing down, but then it comes back with that riff, and then Brian May just he shreds for Brian May. Um, and then the band is gone and Freddie's back to just singing along with the, with the melody. It's just, it's, it's a great tune. I, I love it. Ray. Well, you know, it's funny. Cause I really, I, I kind of was lukewarm to it when I first heard it, but like, as like, I had to really like force myself with this album, which is which I'll get to afterwards. And it was nothing as a slam on the album, but like just some things didn't like grab me right off the bat. But uh, this kind of became closer to one of my favorite tracks on this album. You got a cool keyboard figure um, that <laughs> I didn't get the Jonathan Kane connection until now, but I think that's awesome <laughs> in the beginning. And they got that kind of that kind of a heavy section, which is great. And this song is like a great showcase for Freddie Mercury's vocal range. We could all probably you know spend hours talking about the guy's vocal range, but I think the cool thing about the way he, he sang things is kind of like I guess any artist he makes it almost sounds like he does it effortlessly and especially on this song it sounds like he does it even who knows how many takes he did of it but i think that's really fucking cool at a minute and 33 seconds we get back to that keyboard figure again before you mike you heard um the was it simon and garfunkel i yeah i heard crosby stills and nash <laughs> sweet dude <and> blue eyes <laughs> with the do do do's part <laughs> yeah yep i burnt myself out on big country last week so i'm not even gonna attempt that one but uh, <laughs> uh, two minutes and eight seconds, we got like a new heavy section. And then at two minutes and 39 seconds, another 
uh, cool riff with uh, Brian May soloing over the top of it. I, I love Brian May solos. They're fucking awesome. And then I guess, from what I understand, he's actually the guy who plays piano on this at the four-minute mark while um, Freddie Mercury is singing. Yes. I think it's, it's a great song. And it almost sounds – it's deceptive. I, mean, I know we're treating these as a different track, but it almost sounds like they're going to go until the fade-out until bam. But I'll leave it at that. So, yeah, this is a mid-tempo, heavy-ass rocker that gives you quite a bit of what makes Queen Queen. Brian May's multi-track guitarmonies, John Deacon's often melodic bass, Roger Taylor's supple drumming, and, of course, what the fuck can I say about Freddie Mercury? Unbelievable vocalist, one of the great ones ever. His voice is also multi-tracked, along with Brian and Roger on the vocal harmonies. It's very dense, almost too much in spots. The track almost sounds kind of distorted. But that's what you're going to get with Queen. They're the definition of 70s musical excess. Brian wrote this, and he also plays the brief piano part that sort of gives the track a break before slamming back in. Now, I've always loved Brian's guitar tone, and here it's in your face. He's making that Deaky amp work with all the guitar lines winding over and around each other. Roger's drum fills are cool as shit, as well as his excellent falsetto vocal harmonies. A lot of times when you hear those super high vocal notes, it's Roger, not Freddie. The lyrics are from the perspective of the father who is sort of giving life advice in a letter to his son who's too young to understand now, but will as he gets older and gains experience. I read that it was inspired by Brian and his own father, but I couldn't confirm that. I dig the long outro with Brian ripping it up as the vocals pan from side to side. This song is a crushing steamroller. The following track is White Queen As It Began, written by Brian May. your thoughts well solo freddie vocal sets the mood and this is the leotarded freddie and not the um the big gay freddie yet um not that not that there's anything wrong with that we like big gay freddie as much as we like harlequin freddie but anyway so it's harlequin freddie and he the solo vocal it sets the mood it's got a guitar plucking in the background starts the slow ballad very medieval Brian May hangs back with some dreamy picking as a gong drifts you into an arpeggiated rhyme. You can actually smell the fog machine on this one. (laughs) 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 The layered angelic backups. It's a man who sees a beautiful woman he can never get. And I hear it's about a blind girl that Brian was in love with. It's a lovely tune. It's a lovely queen tune that, uh, segues right into the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a video where she does like a statue of his face? There should be. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. 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 (laughs) Is it me you're looking for? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. Mike, what do you think? (laughs) <laughs> so I, the first thing it reminded me of, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, really creepy 70s cartoon version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, yes. That's, that's what I was thinking of on the song. But it begins dreamily with that acoustic guitar, uh, like you were talking about, Lou, playing with the melody that Freddie sings along with before they separate. But the cadence of Freddie's delivery is really the hook of the song. Uh, despite this 
the musical style kind of pieces with the acoustic guitar. And it's funny, but everything is so familiar sounding on this record. I, and I think it's just my, my own influences growing up on a generation of bands that aped queen. So everything that they're doing in this song, I'm like, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this. And I think it's just because everybody that I grew up listening to aped queen because they loved them so much. And I, I love how the acoustic, the, the acoustic solo, I'm not sure if he was going for the sitar feel on that, or if he was just playing on the fret for that extra vibration. I'm not really sure, but either way, I like that too. And, and then he goes into the electric solo with May briefly playing the melody. And then that acoustic comes back and Freddie sings along on the fade out. It, it, it's a good song. And it just, the, like I said, it's just, it's so familiar, but I, again, I, I can't help but think it's because everybody that I listened to aped it. Ray. Well, second track in, we're already onto my eight of the third power piece of the album. I fucking love this song. It was a really moody piece. You get multi-layered electric guitars, so it gave like a string section kind of a feel. And then there's that quick little acoustic riff figure. And then you just get Mercury and Brian May with the acoustic guitar and these cymbal rolls in the background. And I think that, that this is where the gong comes in as far as I can tell. But during that verse section with the acoustic guitar figure with the tritone, I think it's fucking awesome. Um, it's especially my favorite part of the song. There's some really good shit going on here. And I think the sitar thing at the two minute 50 second mark, because I was like looking at that, is that a fucking sitar? And I guess he had a, an acoustic guitar that he fucked with the bridge somehow that gave it like that weird kind of buzzy sitar sound. So it's pretty cool. I mean, I'll take it over wherever I may roam any day. Um, <laughs> and then you get get some nice lead work by Brian May on this part of the song. So this song is fucking aces. Yeah, so this song was written by Brian in 1968, taking inspiration from the essay The White Goddess by Robert Graves and a girl Brian went to school with that he had a crush on that Lewis mentioned. But he could never muster the guts to ask her out. There are lighter acoustic sections that are eerily atmospheric with high-pitched ooh backing vocals connected to heavy rocking sections. Brian's acoustic guitar had that replacement bridge on it that gives the effect of a sitar on the solo. I originally thought it was a sitar. There's a cinematic feel to this song that feels kind of sweeping in scope, though it's only four and a half minutes long. Freddie's voice is so versatile, he can give a tender, sensitive vocal one moment and then instantly becomes commanding and forceful on the harder sections. The wordless backing vocals are also haunting and sort of float throughout the track. The lyrics are about a man who is in love with a woman he's idealized. She's a goddess to him, but he can't express his feelings for her, so he just kind of silently adores her. I dig this song, and it's a great example of how Brian is just a master of complex guitar arranging and playing. The next track is Someday, One Day, written by Brian May. But now I think you hear me well, for now we both know how. No star can light away in this Lewis, what do you say? This is the one with the Celtic strumming that starts this one, right? It's uh, It's got like a that's the way kind of by Zeppelin. That's my first thought when I hear it. And then um, you get Brian's trademark guitar tone that breaks through all, all that to give us the main theme of the tune. I think he's singing this one. It sounds like his voice. It's yeah, Brian kind of, is. Yeah, it's distinguishable from Freddie's, but it still fits the band and the song. 
it's got layered strummy millions of acoustic guitars uh, it's in a bed with the dreamy vocals and the psychedelic guitar solo weaving through it i wonder if he wrote this you know around the time that he wrote uh white queen as well because it does you know they're really you're saying it like a lot of other bands ape on on the queen sound but they seem to be aping on a lot of the psychedelia that was around 67 68 with this album too mm-hmm. yep I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which is cool. And, and in the context of it, uh, it's, it's probably a little more recent for the people who are listening to this album, you know, when it was brand new. Um, I think he's about, he's writing about himself in the band at that time where he's saying the clouds are hanging over them. And the reference of Queen is actually the band, the aspirations of making it big someday, one day you can definitely hear future albums again in this song things that are, are to come for queen in this song as well. Mike. So it's just, this one's all Brian May, man. Does he, you know, and is that a, like a phase effect on that acoustic guitar when it opens? I it's got a weird kind of effect on it, which I wasn't sure what it was. You know, May's vocals are a little bit subdued. I, I think Freddie could have pulled it off, but I think kind of the subdued, Brian May delivery kind of helps the song a little bit, but this is where you can hear what Queen was trying to do. All like we've been saying, all the different layering and all that kind of stuff. The uh, and I agree with you. I thought I was thinking the same thing. You can hear everything that's going to come down the pipe with uh, with Queen on this record. You hear little bits and pieces of it coming out, and that's where I think it would be would it'd be really interesting to go back to when this time when this album first came out and be able to experience it fresh. You know, we've got all these years afterwards that where kind of their influence are kind of stomping on uh, on the influence of the song. But the uh, I, I think the the song itself, if it's my perception of Brian May, he comes across as just like this sweet, introspective kind of guy. And the song kind of fits that. I remember one time after the Freddie Mercury tribute, James Hetfield was uh, quoted as saying that how all the Queen guys have just had this innocence that a lot of other famous bands didn't have. And I think that's what you hear in the song. So I'll, I'll take it for that. All right. Ray. Well, when we started researching this, I'll be honest, if you asked me to pick a rump, man, this was going to be it. But I'll be honest with you, God damn it, the song grew on me. It's got kind of a folky guitar chords in the beginning and Brian May on lead vocals. And Mike, it's funny that you said subdued because that's exactly what it's like. He's like a subdued, less dramatic Mercury. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think he's a good vocalist. I mean, outside of this, because I'm also not really super familiar with their entire catalog. Like the only other time I remember hearing him sing was like in the middle eight of uh, I Want It All. I know, I said, oh, right. Really yeah. Yeah. But no, he's, I mean, he's passable, man. He's good. No, not passable. He, he's a good singer. I mean, but when you're in a band with Freddie Mercury, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Don Dawkins playing guitar in a band with George Lynch. And he was like, why am I playing guitar when we got this guy? So, right. Exactly. But um, no, it's good stuff. I think John Deacon's bass playing is pretty fucking amazing, especially on this one track. And I got to tell you, I don't know if I can give it, who gets credit on this. If it's Roy Thomas Baker, if he had any hand in the engineering, but the over the drum sound on this album, I'm wicked happy with, and particularly on this song. So uh, hats off to Roy Thomas. Um, <laughs> uh, at three minutes and seven seconds, we get a great solo by May. And Lou, I think you mentioned the kind of the psychedelia. It reminded me of that Jimi Hendrix track, uh, Ah, May This Be Love. Is that the, is that the it's a, from the first album? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's at the, 
yeah, it's like almost that Hawaiian slack key kind of a style of guitar solo. Mm. Um, and I think it, it goes over the top of this perfectly. And as far as like guitar layering on this, I can hear how this influenced Billy Corgan, um, especially like in Gish era and like Siamese Dream era, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. And totally. he cite, yeah, he cites this as one of his like favorite albums too. So you can, now I can see where the DNA is musically. And uh, nice. Um, so yeah, this is another great track. So this one begins with the acoustic guitar strumming and an electric guitar melody playing over it. Roger's drum beat is syncopated and he's not bashing the skins, he's using a lighter touch. This doesn't have true verse-chorus structure. Everything is in three stanzas, but as each stanza goes along, the music builds with a little more intensity until it releases the tension at the end with a someday, one day hook. Brian takes the lead vocal, and he's got a clean, pleasant voice. We've all been saying that. I mean, if he didn't have Freddie fucking Mercury in the band, he could have easily handled lead vocal duties, in my opinion. The lyrics address someone, or possibly could be the band itself. You mentioned that, Lude, that right now things might not be going great. There's a dark cloud hanging overhead, but someday things are going to be different. Things are going to get better. Brian plays a nice melodic solo that doesn't bite or crunch. It's very smooth. There's an instrumental outro section that has three distinct guitar lines and in, in interplaying with each other as opposed to the harmonizing Brian is famous for. Again, that guitar orchestration Brian achieves is amazing. And this track is a, it, it's a total Brian May showpiece. The following track is The Loser in the End, written by Roger Taylor. Lewis, how about this one? Finally, a song by John fucking Taylor. And it's a rocker, no less. Awesome. He's like, he, he actually, I, I love his voice. I love the way he plays drums. I love the way he writes songs. Mr. I'm in love with my car. Um, I yeah. love that song yeah. too. That song is the tits. You can hear it and you can hear it in this. How a mother slaves and toils for her boy clothing, feeding him, only to have him move out on his own after 20 years, but appreciate her and she'll always be there for you. A mother will always lose out on in the end when her boy moves out on his own. It's a sad story, but boy, does it rock. This is the first song that I'm actually almost happy with the production on this album. All right. I'm sorry. I, I was going to wait till the end uh, for this, but there's a huge elephant in the room with this album. And I'm finally going to say it. the album production sounds like shit. The mixing <laughs> is horrible. It sounds amateur. It's got way too many overdubs. Um, it's got as much dynamic range as a bootleg that rerun recorded under his trench coat at a doobie. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like shit. I think that bootleg would have sounded better than this, actually. In, in the immortal words of Aaron Martell, holy shitballs, Batman. Uh, did they not let them use the good mics at Trident Studios? Uh, you know, the shit sounds like they tracked it in a phone booth. I read an interview with Roger Taylor, and he said that 
they ran the tape clear in spots. They wore the fucking oxide right off the tape, running it back and forth over the head so many times while they were overdubbing. A record you'd cut out from the back of a cereal box sounds better than this. It's all (laughs) mid-range. There's no low lows. There's no clear bell highs. The drums sound hollow and flat. I'm sorry, dude. I don't I don't agree with you. These drums sound like shit. Um, To me. The million guitars are are all in one frequency range. Uh, None of it is sharp and clear. It's like it's got a blanket over it. You can't blame it on the times. The technology was there. Listen to records like L.A. Woman, Abbey Road, uh, Chicago Transit Authority. They they were all made a few years before this, and they sound astronomically better than this. Even Graham Funk's early albums sound better than this, and Terry Knight didn't know what the fuck he was doing. (laughs) Right? I can't put my finger on exactly what's going wrong here, but it's way too overproduced. Just because you you can put a thousand overdubs on something doesn't mean you should. This and the last record are plagued with this. It gets better with sheer heart attack. And by the night at the opera, they really, you know, they seem to have their shit together. Uh, I don't know if they changed studios for that. Did they record that at Trident as well? I don't know. I, I yeah, think they might sure. have. I don't know. Going by the movie, they recorded everything in five minutes and, and uh, then, you know, then they were world famous. So you can't go <laughs> by the, the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. But they really they got their shit together by by not at the opera, what they could do and not do as far as producing a sonically good sounding record. Now, that said, I've listened to a live show from Live at the Rainbow 74 and these songs transform live. It's a completely different animal. The chunky riffs, awesome vocals and backups, and the clever songwriting. It brings the life to these songs. Somehow it's mired in a slop in the studio, but every song in that set from this album rocked live in a way that this record just cannot do them justice. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Now tell us how you really feel. Now I'll tell you how I really feel. (laughs) <laughs> so mike what do you think about this song i feel so much better <laughs> uh, so I, i'm torn on this song i mean there's it starts off there are some definite bowieisms in this when it when it starts off and um i guess queen had actually tried to tag bowie as a producer for this record when it came out but he was busy writing stuff for diamond dogs and it kind of puts it in perspective because I I don't really think of when I think of bands that I listen to, I don't really think of who they were contemporaries with. And I forget that that they were contemporaries with the who and Zeppelin and Bowie and Sabbath. And, you know, so, and you think about all these bands and how they all sound differently. So I I hear a little bit of Bowie on this. I like the song and I like Taylor's vocals. That louder screamy does though. Sometimes it, yeah, it that that kind of gets on me a little bit. That was a tad annoying when he got up there, um, but it feels like it came out of a jam session with Deacon and Taylor. The bass line's awesome, as is the odd percussion. I don't know if he was using like wood blocks or soda bottles or you know Freddie's teeth. I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> but the uh, and I, I felt that the. The the placement of the song was a, it was a little weird because the song's called The Loser at the End. It's the only song he writes and they stick it right at the end of side one and it bridges the May and the Mercury stuff. So it's like, here we go. Here's Taylor. Um, but it, it, it serves as that bridge. So it, it it's not my least favorite song, but it, they were so close on making something really good on this one. And I think they missed it a little bit on the mark on that one. Ray, uh, I'm 
I'm in the same boat with Lonas. I like Roger Taylor's vocals. I think it's, I love, I'm in love with my car. And I think it, it comes, it's, it's kind of grittier, it's edgier, it's just more rock, I think. Um, just like straight up rock. And I think it sounds fine on this one. And that said, I, in some ways, I think it's just kind of unfucking fair about like how much talent was in each individual musician in the band um, yep. between like songwriting and what they could pull off. And they, all of them were like Swiss Army knives. You know, you got Brian May can do keys and he can do um, the guitar shit and he can sing. And you got Taylor who can do vocals and do this. It's just, it's fucking weird, but it's cool. I like it. And what I think this stands out for me, and I, <laughs> I'm not even going to be able to think about it. I think of Freddie Mercury's teeth now, but, uh, <laughs> and this image of like the Flintstones where there's like that hippo mouth and somebody's like playing like, Xylophone on the teeth, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but fucking, um, I think it's a marimba. I'm not 100 percent with that thing in the background. Yeah, I like it. it. It's like awkwardly cool. I was listening to it, and like if the left hand, the left channel, it sounds almost to me like I'm not sure if it's like that weird REM Peter Buck tremolo effect, or if they're playing through a Leslie rotating speaker. But the guitar on the left channel almost sounds like an organ, but I'm almost fucking positive it's just a fucking it's just a clean channel guitar with some sort of effects on it. And I kind of like that. I think it's fucking mint. And then once again, I mean, great soloing by Brian May. So there you go. There you have it. Who's loser in the end is <laughs> orthodontist in England. <laughs> <laughs> So Roger always got a track of his own to write and sing on Queen Records. And though he was never going to rival Freddie or Brian or later on even John as a songwriter, I always like hearing what he comes up with as a contrast and a change of pace in the, in the record. This song's got a stomping groove in the rhythm section and the drums are heavily reverbed and sound bombastic. Brian's guitar tone is dirty, man, borderline ugly, which is his fucking choice. It, it doesn't sound like his usual tone. And his solo sounds more off the cuff, less orchestrated. He's just rocking out. Go for it, Brian. Roger has a good voice, too. It's more rough around the edges, especially when he goes for the higher notes without going up into the falsetto. It's just remarkable how this band had three outstanding vocalists and one bass player. Much like the Beatles, it let this group do anything they wanted to vocally. The lyrics are about an overprotective mother who's upset when her son leaves home. She's got to learn the hard way to let the boy go, ma! I think this track is fun. I like it. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on the first track on Side Black, Ogre Battle, written by Freddie Mercury. Now once upon How about this one? I, I like this side way better than the first side. And beginning with Ogre, Ogre Battle, the beginning of this sounds like very early Judas Priest to me, sliding into a post-Desolation Boulevard suite. It's definitely, by, by the end of the intro, it's got a real sweet vibe to it. By the end of that backward-pounding intro, it's all Freddy in Classic Queen. There's a fast-fingered riff, layered everything, but this is heavy. It's Metal Queen. I'm still getting a serious sweet vibe from it. 
the later sweet. Uh, if you don't fuck me, then somebody will. The middle freak out slams back into a chugging verse, then into that final riffing final section. It's great tune. Uh, love it. It's uh, even better live at the live on uh, at the rainbow metal queen at its finest. Rock and Mike. Uh, I'm, I'm with you, man. The uh, so I always thought, I thought that beginning was pretty cool. So I guess that backwards intro is actually the it's the at- outro being played backwards. And they threw it at the beginning and they kind of looped it, which I thought that was pretty cool because when they come out of that into the song, it's seamless. Like you're like, you're listening to it. You're like, wait a minute. Wasn't that just fucking backwards? And then you're, you're right into it. It was, and that, I thought that was pretty freaking cool. Again, back to like bombastic, heavy queen, uh, John Deacon supplies the heaviness. And it's really, he's the thread for the rest of the band. May jumps off and on and provides the ogre battle effects. And then he jumps in and he plays the melody Freddie sings. Uh, Taylor has that high pitch. Ah! But for me, this is Lou. I'm, I'm with you. This is the, for me, this is the first power metal song. Really? I mean, you think about it. It's got the fantasy lyrics. It's got the high pitch vocals, simulated battle noises. This is the first, I think this is really the prototype for power metal. It, it, I, I freaking love this tune. This is great. I won't argue with that. Ray. I'm glad that both of you said what you did as far as the priest and the power metal, because I was thinking this sounds like it's pointing in the direction of the new wave of British heavy metal that's going to come down the road years later. I think it's really great riffing by Brian May. And as far as his rhythm playing goes, this is probably like my favorite rhythm playing of, of Brian May's that I've heard so far. You got classic Queen vocal harmonies. <laughs> the three minute and eight second mark, the screaming is just fucking hysterical. It sounds like an angry housewife. <laughs> How would you know? An angry, freaked out. Co- <laughs> I have a friend, see, who annoys his wife for kicks. And yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> and I like how it kind of goes out of the gong. I also like Chuck Barris pops out of nowhere with like a lampshade on his head and they said hey chuck go ahead and he he hits the gong and they're good to go it's got that dean gene the dancing machine and ending <laughs> <laughs> holy fucking shitballs batman this is what it is for me this is my favorite track on the album and one of my favorite Queen tracks ever. The next track is The Fairy Feller's Master Stroke, written by Freddie Mercury. What about this one? I see what he did there. (laughs) (laughs) 
Fun tune. Harpsichord intro, or what I think sounds like harpsichord. Sounds like something from like Mamma Mia, doesn't it? It's got hints of bicycle race. There's fairy folk, there's fellas, there's plowmen, there's politicians, there's dirty ladios, there's soldiers, sailors, nymphs in yellow, ticking fancies. It's a rip-roaring good time. Uh, it's based on a painting by Richard Dad. It's a straight description of what's happening in the painting. Um, Mr. Dad painted his work in the Bethlehem Hospital, where he's sent after murdering his father and being declared insane. The scene was drawn from his imagination. It shows the fairy feller poised to split a large chestnut, which will be used to construct the Queen Mab's new fairy carriage. It's actually a really intricate painting, and I can tell or I can see how the guy could be completely insane painting it. It's a fun tune. That's classic Queen again. I can't, I can't imagine why I have never heard this album before, and I'm really kicking myself. So thank you, Rock Record Reviews, for turning me on to this. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what do you think? So I'd heard this is really like uh, Ogre Battle, this and the next track are really like three pieces of the same kind of musical piece, I guess. So really, um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt it. That's what reminded yeah. me about this album was it was like an Abbey Road on the second side where yeah. all the songs kind of ran together. And it was like just, yeah. just one big masterpiece of a fucking great tune. Kind of did yeah. on the first side, though, too. They kind of ran into each other. The side white and the side black are almost all interconnected with each other. I don't know. And I can't help but think, too, like they were just kind of early enough in their career where they were a little kind of afraid to say, hey, here's one track that's 12 minutes long. So they yeah. divided it up. But there's enough of a change uh, musically where, it, you know, it's, it's passable. But the uh, but for me, Deacon, man, again, he's just threading that whole song together with a bass line. Everything just keeps getting layered and layered and layered. And I heard this was left off. Um, they had an idea for an album they never flushed out called The Day at the Renaissance Fair. So they, <laughs> that was off this track. So but May's lead work, he plays along with the group kind of vocalisms and Mercury. I, I read he is on harpsichord and he, and he just just a continuation of ogre battle for me and it's freaking cool as hell and it goes right into the next track ray holy shit there's a lot of stuff going on for two minutes and 33 seconds you get guitar harmonies you got harpsichord classic queen vocal layering um and probably my favorite brian may guitar solo on this album it's almost like somebody decided to take like all the different elements of queen the queenisms if for lack of a better phrase and try to compress it into the two minute and 33 seconds. It's like the Reader's Digest version of Queen songs. And it's cool. So this segues in from Ogre Battle with a ticking sound that pans from side to side and Freddie playing both piano and harpsichord with producer Roy Thomas Baker on castanets. This song basically breaks down into two sections. The first has a quick tempo and the repeated descending bass line makes me think of movement, of running. You know, even Freddie's vocals sound like they're being delivered in a hurry. The second section slows things down a little bit. It's less frantic. The notes and chords aren't as choppy and the vocals are given more time to develop. Brian's guitar is more supportive than carrying the musical load, but he still gets in his guitar minis. The overall arrangement is intricate and complex, and it's notable for the extensive use of panning with instruments and vocals that makes this pretty wild to listen to on headphones. This song was directly inspired by a painting by Richard Dad called The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke and a companion poem he wrote for it, Elimination of a Picture and its Subject, called The Feller's Masterstroke. 
Lewis gave a great description of what that's all about, so I don't need to go into that. This track is the kind of thing Queen does that I can appreciate as art, but it's definitely not my favorite track. I mean, it's okay. As the song winds down, a three-part vocal harmony dissolves into a piano part that segues straight into the following track. And that following track is Nevermore, written by Freddie Mercury. Your thoughts? What I think is Freddie's piano playing shines here, uh, makes the song. I hear shades of love of my life in this. Uh, reading the lyrics, I wonder if he wrote this about Mary Austin, his beard, I guess you would call her. Uh, his, <laughs> his best friend. That, uh, kind of a soulmate, know. really. Yeah, no, he was, uh, and uh, I mean, he, he did leave her everything in the end, but there, a lot of the songs, the love songs that he was writing were about her in the beginning. Beautiful song, beautiful. Mike. I agree. It's a beautiful song. It's kind of a nice way to wrap up that ogre battle fairy fellers kind of suite that they're that they're building. So I just kind of looked at it as an an outro with the layered vocals and that beautiful piano playing Um, the Freddie's vocal delivery towards the end. The Nevermore's very reminiscent of something that annoyed uh, that annoyed us on the extreme album, the album version of more than words, that album version where he breaks out the more than words at the end where it's just like uncomfortably awkward when he's trying to deliver that to me, he's aping the delivery of nevermore at the end of this song. So, and I know Gary Sharon and, you know, Bencourt both have uh, expressed their love of queen too. It does not work for extreme, but it does work for Freddie fucking Mercury. So I, I like it. Ray. Well, I'm going to pretty much say what those both these guys have said, it's a, I love this song. You got great piano work by Mercury. And it's kind of funny because from what I read, like he was trained on piano like up to like age nine and then like kind of goes back to the whole album being really super fucking talented. I guess he didn't really play much later on in his career. He did some keyboard stuff, but he was never like as piano heavy as he was in the early to mid part of their the band's career. But um, man, the guy, I think the guy could play beautifully. And the vocals are awesome on this too. Kind of a weird little connection I made though is um, I can tell, you guys heard of the comic book series on Vertigo, Sandman? Yes. Yeah. Neil Gaiman. Written by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, he wrote Coraline and he wrote um, Bad Omens, like, well, the Terry Pratchett. But, you know, like a lot of stuff that's out there, it's really kind of cool. He's a really cool author. He's one of my favorites. But he actually wrote an article reviewing uh, the Fairy Feller's Master Stroke and how, like, when he was a kid, he had Queen 2 and he had saw some, he saw the picture, like an album fold or something like that. But also, he named one of his, uh, I think it's his first full novel was Nevermore too. So you can, (laughs) thank you Queen for giving that influence to Neil Gaiman because that made some cool shit for, you know, entertaining me. I think Deacon's bass work on this is really awesome. That guy's a fucking great bassist, man. I don't think he gets nearly as much credit as he should. I mean, another, okay. Another one bites the dust is a great bass line, you know, even if he didn't nick it from uh, chic, but there's a lot of different stuff going on with, with John Deacon's bass lines. And this is a good example of it. What I like is I think uh, this might be what you're talking about, Mike, the back and forth nevermores that kind of go from like left channel to right channel. Is that what extreme was aping? 
There was one where at the end, Sharon is like, he goes, I won't even try it, but it's like more than, and then when he says words, he just elongates words and it, it's, it's uncomfortably awkward. Like I, I, I'm not in the room with the guy and I have to look at the floor when he, when I hear that song, cause it's just like, <laughs> like, all right. And when I was listening to it today, I was like, oh, this is that done right. So, um, I, I think it's reminiscent of that a lot. Right on, right on. Well, I, I really can't get, add much more to this. I think it's a good way to wrap up that musical triptych, if you will. <laughs> now, this track I really like. Freddie had a way with writing beautiful piano ballads and infusing them with a heartfelt emotion that seeps through the vocals. There's some gorgeous vocal harmonies and a touch of bass on the bottom end, as well as some ringing noises that were achieved by someone plucking the piano strings as Freddie played them. The lyrics describe a heartbreak, and Freddie delivers them with touching sincerity. It's short, to the point, and gorgeous. The next track is The March of the Black Queen, written by Freddie Mercury. hit us oh man this is arguably the highlight of this record great tune it's just epic it's the prototype to bohemian rhapsody march of the black queen is another example of freddie's love for this oblique lyricism that he has in storytelling that have elaborate fairy tales but this hidden meaning that he only knows he pulls out all the stops all the mannerisms of a proper queen frontman. it's got classic brian may uh, his tone, all his licks. Did I mention layers upon layers of rapid fire <laughs> octave jumping, lyrical stabs, swells, swoons, and soars? Um, sounding more of an off-Broadway play for the first part and then segueing into a heavier rock part, a la Rhapsody, he'll be her bad boy for his marching black queen. Uh, he'll do anything for her. He'll be her bad boy. He'll be, I, I was just singing that all friggin' week after a while. Um, this song's a fucking masterpiece and it's full of all the recording techniques that would be used from uh, on albums to come. This is the song they ran the tape clear on. According to Roger, they thought it was impossible to play this live, uh, in its entirety. So they played the extended version of the heavy rock section towards the end. And it was a segue from Killer Queen. They used to do a medley of it live. Um, Live, it's amazing as well. And uh, I think they could have pulled it off a little bit later on in their career if they if they would have tried the whole song, especially uh, since they've done Bohemian Rhapsody live. I don't think they would need many sequences as far as, um, you know, uh, tape backgrounds and things if they played this live. March to the Black Queen. Phenomenal, phenomenal tune. This is as good as Queen gets. Rock a mic. Ditto. Um, I I don't think it's a coincidence that this is Queen's second longest song in their catalog behind Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, even Brian May said that this was a precursor to that. Uh, it, but it, it takes almost 50 seconds for the Queen to come out of the song, if you know what I mean. Like, it, it's, it's just kind of building. And then all of a sudden, once it comes in, you're like, yeah, this is fucking Queen. And this is what you love about Queen. Uh, the vocal layering and the verses – 
sounds really cool in headphones too with maze lead work jumps channels and then the song slows down again about the three minute mark for about a minute but then it builds back up and the harmonies come in and then uh with uh taylor and freddie they share that lead briefly um the guitar and the piano though at the end towards the end that is complete bohemian rhapsody the solo with the tone and it but this song is so freaking cool and same thing i like Lou, you said it before, like, well, how, how had I not heard that? How did I not hear this? Right. Like did they th- play it on the radio in, in the United no. States. Cause I did not no, hear this. Never, ever. <laughs> not, not at all. Like I, I was like, man, this is two weeks in a row where I'm listening to records. Like what the fuck? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't, I don't, I don't own either one. And I'm like, man. And now like, go back to my Amazon account and try and grab a copy of this. And, uh, but man, what a song. And, you ever want to feel just like talentless? Listen to Queen because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how did they come up with this crap? They're, it's a great song, start to finish. Ray, uh, full disclosure, Lou. I actually uh, messaged Aaron and Mike earlier today, and I was like, I don't even know how to approach this. I mean, it's just a <laughs> fucking monolith of a song. It just kind of reaches up. And I like, where do I even begin? You know, there's just so many different parts of this song. And the cool thing about that is that I think anybody can like go back and find new parts every time you listen to it or new or look at it from new angles. And because um, there's just so much shit going on. On the side of uh, lead work, I know I haven't been very descript about Mr. May's soloing, but he's got some nice wah soloing on this, Kirk Hammett. Uh, <laughs> 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 but it's good, man. It's like him and Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy are like my favorite wah guys from, from the 70s. And uh, yeah, it's fucking good. There's just so much shit going on. It's, it's a really ambitious track. And it is really weird. So I don't know what the fuck Freddie's singing up Powder Monkeys and some other <laughs> shit. But it doesn't matter because it sounds awesome. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a little over the top. I can see this as the precursor to Bohemian. I think Bohemian actually had like, there's more of a steady flow that I can kind of pick up on between all the different sections. This doesn't really necessarily, I, I can't really pick up on like a flow between the different sections, but that's just, who knows, maybe a month from now when I listen to it, I'll change my mind. But it's almost to me like a song collage. It's, it's like a bunch of different stuff going on. I mean, there's a couple melodic ideas that they repeat throughout or will we'll resurface in there. But uh, man, this song is, is uh, a lot of good shit going on. It is pretty fucking awesome. And you know what? I, I agree with the two of you. I, this should have been played on rock radio. So Brian May said this is a precursor to Bohemian Rhapsody. We've said that and it's easy to hear why. It took Freddie a very long time to complete, as he'd been working on it since before Queen was even formed. And it's a bunch of musical themes and structures stitched together by the constant piano that clangs throughout the track. This has got everything, man. The big vocal harmonies and guitar harmonies, dramatic shifts and tempo, polyrhythms and dynamics, layers upon layers of overdubs. So much so that Roger commented that the tape had gone transparent as the oxide wore off, something that was apparently misquoted as being attributed to Bohemian Rhapsody. And Freddie's fantastical out there lyrics, which I don't know what they mean, but the Black Queen character seems to be wicked or evil and is the ruler of a group of debauched, shady subjects. This is all Freddy. It comes across like a mini opera or a musical. I think you said that, Lou, in itself. And this track does make longtime hardcore Queen fans jizz themselves blind. But man, 
<laughs> Look, I can appreciate the sophistication and just the sheer balls and artistic vision this represents, but I feel like Freddie did this kind of thing better over time. This doesn't even make my wee-wee tingle, let alone get it hard. And though I accept that this sort of self-indulgence is part of what Queen does, I don't find this particular song that memorable. It doesn't stick in my head. So <clears throat> I'm going to call this Aaron's Stinky Stinker. I'm in awe. I, I am shocked. And every Queen fan in the world wants to hang, <laughs> wants to string me up and lynch me. <laughs> I'm probably going to lose. <laughs> Do you want to provide the email now? <laughs> probably going to lose a bunch of listeners. It didn't, make, <laughs> Shit. it didn't make anything tingle, huh? Do you need to pay a visit to the Fairy Feller's Master Stroke? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the penultimate track is Funny How Love Is, written by Freddie Mercury. Lewis, what do you think? Psychedelic queen. Let's put on the Nehru jackets and ride the magic carpet. (laughs) (laughs) Far out, man. (laughs) Far out, man. This song, um, it fits in 67 as well as it does here. Hippy dippy lyrics, about 20 too many layers of the song. It would have worked for me if it was a couple of voices, a drum, and one acoustic guitar. But it's a soup of sound that really goes nowhere. This would be my... Lose shitty skipper. <laughs> um, I mean, it, you know, it's a decent song, but you know, if I had to pick one for a skipper, it would be either this one or the Brian May song from the first side. That's about all I got to say about it. Rock and Mike. So three minutes of everything that we've already heard previously on this record. There you Funny. go. It's just, it's everything we've already heard. Funny, funny, funny. Funny how this song isn't any damn good. Um, and, and if this song made me late for tea, I'd be pissed. So I, this is Mike's unimpressed fluffy fuckery. Oh. Ray. <laughs> okay. Um, funny how love is. I think. I'm going to go – I know I keep going back to like different stuff like Queen has influenced. But I got to tell you, the chugging acoustic guitar really kind of reminds me of Billy Corgan's work on Disarm and In My Daydream. That, that, dun, 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 dun. You can definitely see he, he grabbed some shit off of that. Yes. And I can't put my finger on it, why it sounds like it, because I don't think both vocalists sound alike. But something about the vocal melody reminds me of Elton John like in the 70s and uh, – I don't know if it's the note choice or maybe just the way Freddie sings it, but it just sounds kind of very similar to Elton John. And they, holy shit, they modulate all over the fucking place. I mean, they take the same idea and then they play it there. Then they'll change keys again and then they'll change keys again. Um, I kind of oddly dig it. The previous track segues into this, with acoustic guitar strumming away over a syncopated drum beat, a simple bass line, some additional percussion and Brian May electric leads, and those amazing Queen vocal harmonies. 
This was inspired by the Phil Spector Wall of Sound production technique, and you can tell the sonic space is used up to the brim. Lyrically, it's a simple ode to love in all its forms. It's anywhere and everywhere, from the earth to the heavens. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need, you know? The vocals are in Freddie's upper register, and there's an uplifting vibe to this that feels pretty damn good. And that brings us to the final track, Seven Seas of Rye, written by Freddie Mercury. Lewis, how about the last one? Why do I get a Billy Joel vibe from this intro? It's like, um, you know, um, wasn't that good? Um, (laughs) Every young man, something like that. It's, you know, it's that that real octave piano. It's, it's that. That's what I'm getting from from the uh, the beginning. But then it it kind of turns into a shanty tune, a rocking queen tinged shanty tune about. The seven seas of rye. <laughs> it's about all I, I got to say about it. It's more of the same. It's 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 Brian May's licks. Uh, it's it, it's all more of the same, and it's all more the great queen. And I love it. And give me more. I just wish it was better recorded. Rock and Mike. So I like that. I like this tune. This was the one song that uh, I was familiar with, and I think it's a pretty cool choice on Queen's part. Hey, we're gonna put the single at the end. Um, <laughs> was that the single? That, yeah. This was the single? This is the single, the single from the album. The only one. Okay. Yep. Yep. I mean, I, I guess it really didn't matter back in the days when you, you know, when you're only getting it on vinyl because you could jump to it anyway. But I, like, I know if in the 80s, if they put this out on cassette, I would have been like, what the fuck? Like, really? You're going to put this at the end? Like, it's the one song I know. Um, but I thought it was a bold move on their part. I like that uh, piano arpeggio opening. Um, it's the song really stands out. And for me, it was an, it's kind of an obvious choice because it doesn't have the like over bloated feel. And I say that in the kindest way that I can, but it doesn't have that over bloated feel of the rest of the album. It's got a little bit of a chugging rhythm and Freddie actually has a, a bit of a growl in his voice for his, it sounds weird, but I mean, as much of a growl as Freddie Mercury can have. Um, I love the combination of the chug with those background vocals. Um, and then at 220, it starts to sound disjointed as the song fades down and it leaves the band singing. I do like to be side the seaside as the, as the album fades out. Cool way to end with the only sing with the only uh, single off the album. So I like it. Ray. Well, just like Rock and Mike, this is the only song I was familiar with off this album. Uh, and I've always loved it. I've loved the chugging, galloping guitar riff. The only thing that like always kind of threw me about this song was like at the one minute, 16 second mark, after I have to go, ah! <laughs> Brian May plays like a little country lick. It's like, wait, 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 how do you go from like, from like this kind of a proto heavy riff to all of a sudden you're going into Albert Lee? Okay. <laughs> That's cool, man. Whatever you do, you but it doesn't detract from the song. Uh, the piano figure, which Lou talked about, the Billy Joel figure, I think it's pretty rad. And this is why I always say I'm not a lyric guy. So <laughs> <laughs> for years, I've listened to this song, and I really only half paid attention to it. And I, I really honestly thought he was singing 
storm the Boston Marathon of my truth. I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, this is what it all boils down to. I'm I'm just a fucking moron. Um, I never even got that far, so don't feel yeah. bad. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> but I also dig the music thing. You know, it's kind of like you know, yeah, like a music hall. You picture a bunch of people sitting in some parlor around the around the piano in some parlor somewhere in England. It's kind of a funny way to end the song. So it's a good closer. This song was first developed by Freddie in 1969 in his earlier band Wreckage. And it begins with Freddie playing those piano arpeggios with both hands an octave apart. And then it transitions to an up-tempo rocker with Brian's fantastic guitar monies and leads. John Deacon's bass even pushes to the forefront of the mix a couple of times on this. And I feel like I've personally been giving the shaft to John this episode because I haven't talked about him much. But make no mistake, he was an important contributor to this band. I mean, even though he was the quiet one and avoided conflicts with the other band members, he was an excellent bassist, occasional guitarist, and a very good songwriter who blossomed later on in the band's career. The lyrics in this song are about the fictitious fantasy world of Rye, which seems to be a not-so-pleasant place where a god or powerful force of some kind has come to smite the wicked and the evil, a la the biblical tale of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, at least that's how I interpret this. Who the fuck really knows? Freddie probably didn't even know. The piano intro to this closed out Queen's self-titled first album, and this was intended to lead off Queen 2, but the band decided to go with different sequencing. As the track fades, it blends into the band singing an old British music hall song, I Do Like to Be Beside the Seaside, with Roy Thomas Baker on stylophone, which serves as Queen having a bit of fun to close the album out. It is fun, and it was the only single from the album which reached number 10 on the UK singles chart. Now that the track-by-track is done, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which got killed in an ogre battle. Lewis, what are your final thoughts on Queen 2? Um, and I'm going to give this just for the production. I'm going to give this album a solid two. It, it's got the songwriting chops. It does have some of the production chops of the later albums. And you can definitely hear that this is a prototype and kind of a blueprint of what was to come. But I think they really missed the mark as far as production here. And that really kind of takes an entire star away from me. I would have given it a three. I like most of the songs. It wouldn't be something that I would have in heavy rotation, but I do appreciate March of the Black Queen, and I do appreciate the different queenisms that kind of came to fruition in, in the last album. I can see where they were heading with this one. Now, if it was recorded like Live at the Rainbow 74 was recorded, I would give it a four because that album was more like uh, – the the classic queen that I know where it doesn't sound like um, Brian May was just being a quintessential pain in the ass in the studio, making everybody do things a million times and overdubbing on a 16 track recorder, 150 guitars all bumped down to one track so that uh, they could fit all the different instruments on. That's how that flat recording came to be. If anybody's ever done any kind of demos or anything on, on like a Tascam Porta studio and you have to just keep crunching down each, each track by track and just keep forcing them down so that you can, you, you, you can free up tracks, this is what you get. You get something that has the dynamic range of a shoebox and it shows and you can hear it in the production. But other than that, it's Queen and uh, it's better than Big Country. So <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs> and see you next Tuesday. 
Rock and Mike. I'm I'm going to disagree. I like I like Big Country better than this record. Um, I I will give this a three and a half. Like like you said, it's got everything that you're going to hear down the line. You know, Queen's still developing. They're still young. They're still pulling songs from their from the late '60s from previous bands. So they're still fleshing stuff out. I like where it sees you see where it's going to go. You know, obviously had some standouts. Um, I really like Father to Son. Battle, March of the Black Queen, White Queen, and even the uh, the song about the bakery, the Seven Seeds of Rye. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get a kick out of that one, too. Um, so I, I like it. I probably at some point will pick it up so I can have a copy of March of the Black Queen. Yeah, three and a half. I'll go with that. Ray. Well, I got to be honest with you. When I was listening to this, I'm not sure if there's, there's stuff going on, but like I really struggled with this for about the first three and a half days that I was re- like listening to it. And it was, there was no tracks that like I hated, but like for whatever reason, um, none of the things, as much as I love them, there's nothing that was like kind of like hooking me in right off the bat. But like for whatever reason, by the fourth day, like I, things were starting to kind of solidify. Like, well, what is it about this that I like? So I'm going to say it's a solid album. I'm going to go with with the three and a half because you know they were heading in a good direction. I mean, there's there's like the seedlings of of something good coming out of this, um, and there's a lot of good stuff going on with it. So I, I'd say it has potential. I'll go with the three and a half. Queen had quite a backlog of material by the time they recorded their first album in 1972, and they decided to hold off on their more complex material that they had developed until they had more freedom and experience in the studio. Due to management issues, however, their first record wasn't released until mid-1973, weeks before they were due to begin recording Queen 2, and the band insisted they record at regular working hours at Trident Studios instead of during downtime, as they were forced to for the debut. The band asked David Bowie to produce the album, but he was too busy with his own project, so he declined, and Queen returned to Roy Thomas Baker as producer, along with Robin Jeffrey Cable, on a few tracks. When I listen to Queen 2, I hear a band figuring things out. It's way more ambitious than the first album, and the particular characteristics that would be associated with Queen begin to appear here, with the complex arrangements, musical cross-genres, and big, almost overdone production techniques. Brian's guitarmonies and the multi-tracked vocal harmonies are greatly expanded, and to me, there's a sense of, fuck it, throw it all in there. All of the band's self-indulgences and over-the-top tendencies come to the fore, especially Freddie's. That said, there's a whole lot to like on this album, from gorgeous melodies to flat-out hard rocking. There are elements of hard rock, art rock, prog rock, glam rock, even a touch of metal on here. Even the album cover is iconic, with the band members' faces in a diamond formation turned up to the light, inspired by an old Marlena Dietrich photograph. When it was released, Queen 2 received mixed reviews by the music press, but over time it gained a cult following and now, though it's still one of Queen's lesser-known works, artists such as Rob Halford, Billy Corrigan, and Axl Rose, among others, have cited it as one of their favorites. For me, I like this album a lot. It touches on so many things I love about Queen. There's not a single track that I despise. But the band's not quite there yet. They're rapidly developing, though. And in my opinion, it really comes to fruition on the next album, Sheer Heart Attack. I give Queen 2 a three and a half. And though I don't consider this an absolute essential work, by all means, if you have an interest in Queen past the hits and want to sink your teeth into some of the best deep tracks the band has to offer, you should do yourself a favor and check out this album. And from Album Addicts, Freddie Mercury, rest in peace. 
Now we'd like to thank Louis Figaro for returning to the podcast and talking some Queen with us. It's fun times, man. Hey, thanks a lot. I love doing this. Thanks. It's, 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 I love it. Thanks. Yeah, we can't wait to have you back, man. Awesome. We got an Apple Podcast review. It's a five-star review about our Billy Joel episode that comes to us from former ump, who is our great friend, Professor Ray Permi. It's titled Holy Nostalgia, Batman, and it says... This album conjures all sorts of memories. 1978 was when I had started to expand my personal musical horizons past KISS. I listened to the radio nonstop and particularly listened to the 7.30 p.m. show, the daily top 10 on 98.5 FM. Paradise by the Dashboard Light seemed to live at the top of the local charts until Billy Joel started to knock it off its perch. Moving out, She's Always a Woman, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Vienna, Only the Good Die Young, The Stranger, and Just the Way You Are. What a massive album this was. Might as well have been a Billy Joel's Greatest Hits package. All of them except Vienna were included in his late 1980s Greatest Hits package. The memories that this music conjures up for me blew me away. Things I haven't thought about since junior high school. Yeah, I went to junior high school, not middle school, LOL. Billy Joel is one of my favorite artists, if not a guilty pleasure. He could write a catchy song that could easily become an earworm, but not just any earworm, the kind that didn't annoy you. This album, 52nd Street, Songs in the Attic, Glass Houses are classics in my view. Hell, I still listen to and enjoy 1993's River of Dreams. I do too, Ray P. And to all the listeners, thank you. And please leave us some more Apple Podcast reviews as it helps the podcast out. And as always, rock on. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Let us know and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. I'm Ray. And I'm Mike. See ya. Bitches leave. That's what happens when you let the singer write a song.
the fairy feller's master stroke. What the? <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as how I made money in college. <laughs> I never thought about how fucking stupid it sounds when you say it out loud. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Leopold. Leopold. 